what if, even as we're reading this passage and as we're going through it, what if we actually took this passage seriously? What if we took it seriously? Like, I know a lot of people argue about, like, literally reading everything in the Bible. Like, you gotta read the whole thing literally, and I don't necessarily think that everything's meant to be taken literally. But actually, this passage, if you were to take it literally, you'd probably be doing better than most. Um, but just to take it seriously, like, what if, what if we actually read it like, God, what if God really wanted to say this, and we just missed it? What if God was actually saying what it says that he's saying, and we just didn't, and we just, we just overlooked it for so long? What if we realize that this passage is telling us something that we can change in our own lives, and it has the potential to make the whole world a better place? What would that be like for your families? What would that be like for our community? What type of example would that set for our kids? What could that do for the city of Detroit? What could that do for our world? So I kind of want us to go into it with that framework as we just dive in. So I'm just going to read off the screen today. Let's open up our Bibles together to 1 John 3, 11 through 18. Okay, so this is John, same guy that wrote the Gospel of John. He's writing this letter to his church that has kind of fallen off from where they probably should be with God. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning— that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and who murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. We love them. Whoever does not love, or whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Sounds like Jesus. It's what Jesus says, not what he does. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, this is the, the big moment, the epicenter. By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Let's pray. Jesus, Father God, we are so grateful, Lord, that even on this rainy day, Lord, that you would provide us with shelter, you would provide us with a place that we could come and be warm and we could uh, be together in community and we could study your word and we can wrestle with what it says and we can wrestle with how this applies to our lives in our context, in our city today, God. God, be with us, Holy Spirit. Speak through me. Be in this room. Go before me as we dive into just an unbelievably loaded set of scriptures. Holy Spirit, let everything that you would have me to say, let me say. Let everything else fall to the ground before it ever even comes out of my mouth. And first and foremost, let grace be evident and present in this room today. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so 
as always, you know, through the study through 1 John, there, there's a lot here, right? That's very obvious. You read it, you're like, okay, there, there's a lot going on in what we just read. This is actually one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. I, I really love this. I've always really loved this passage. Uh, but even more this week, I was, I was more convicted by it, more challenged by it than I've ever been in my life this week. And what I actually want to do is I want to work through this backwards, I want us to start by on verse 17 and 18. Look again at what it says. This is what the ESV says. It says this. If anyone, and that's what we read earlier. It was from the English Standard Version. If anyone, you, me, our neighbor, anybody, if anybody has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, if you have a way to meet that need and you do not meet that need, if you close your heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It doesn't. Little children, let us not just love in word and talk. Let us not just be people of words. Let us be people of action. Let us love in deed and in truth. Now, this is actually a very rare moment when, um, and I say rare because I, I don't much like, I don't really care much for the old King James Version of the Bible, but this is one of the very few moments that I'm actually going to read to you uh, the, what the old King James says because I actually think it grasps this concept better than our modern translations. Look at how the old King James puts this, this verse. But whoso hath the world's goods, and seeth his brother have need, and he shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, and neither in tongue, but in deed and truth. Now I imagine that most of you, if you're like me, you read this, and after you, know, you, after you kind of hold in that laugh of immaturity at the word bowels in the Bible, right? You probably thought to yourself, what in the world? Like, if you're on the other side, if you're on the receiving side of somebody's bowels being closed off to you, like, I think you're probably going to be like, yes, please, please close those off to me. I don't need your bowels. I would much prefer, actually, to have the bowels closed off to me. Right? Is that, am I not, is that not true, right? Do we actually want people's bowels opened up to us? I don't know. That's just, but, but this is what I believe this is saying. It's actually very, very, very loaded. This word bowels, it's, it's a Greek word that it could mean your intestines, as in like what's inside of you, your insides. But it also could mean a heart in which mercy resides. And this concept especially in the ancient world, the world where John's writing to, was actually viewed a lot more deeply than just what this definition describes. Let me just try, I'm going to try my hardest to put this in perspective for you and see if you can grasp this, okay? Um, have you ever been, I know you have, you've been in a situation, right, where somebody was saying something to you, maybe. Maybe something they're saying to you, and maybe it's, you have this feeling, and maybe it's a bad feeling. Like, like they're just lying to you, maybe, Right? And you don't know what it is, but you just know something's not right. And you say, I just, I knew something was off there. Something wasn't right. Or maybe you get an instinct like, man, I just know I'm not supposed to get in that car. I don't know why. I don't know where it's coming from. I just know I'm not supposed to get in that car. And even though it's, you know, we all know it's the Holy Spirit who's speaking to you, most likely, most of us would describe it as this. Like what you say, like, I just knew deep down, right? I felt this in my gut right? I just shouldn't do this. That's what this is talking about. It's talking about the core of who you are, the part of you that says, I just know that I know. And you can use that same core that can be beneficial in moments like that to actually respond in love. For instance, 
when Don and I lived in Los Angeles. We, we, there was one season of our lives where we, it was a transitional season. We had just moved out of the Dream Center and into our first apartment. We had just had a baby, and apartments are very expensive in Los Angeles, so it wasn't cheap. And we, had, we, we were about to take on this video editing project that was actually going to kind of pay our bills for a while, which was really good, but, we, but it hadn't come yet. You know, it was like that moment, like, we're not quite there yet, and we were having a lot of trouble paying our bills in that moment. And we still worked at the Dream Center, and we were in our office at the Dream Center, and my friend Tyler, our friend Tyler, who's a very close friend of mine now, now he's doing amazing things for the Lord. He's in uh, Austin, Texas, directing worship at one of the biggest churches in the entire nation now. Anyway, so he knocks on the door, he pops in, and he, and he just hands me a check for $500. And at that time, I'm like, nobody's ever given me that kind of money before, and 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 I, and. I, and I asked him, I said, Tyler, why are you doing this? I mean, I know he works at the same place I work at. It's not like he has $500 just lying around. It's a lot of money. And this is what he said to me. He said, honestly, I've, I've never done anything like that before. Not anything that big, at least, as it, like for anybody before. But there was just something inside of me that told me, I just need to do this. And I've never felt anything so strongly, and I'm not about to question that. And since then, we've actually had more experiences like that. More people have been gracious and generous in that same way to us. A, a lot more people have done that over, over the years since that moment. People who have helped carry our family from where we are to kind of where we're going on this pathway as we, we step out in faith and God kind of meets us through other people who are just responding to that faith. And, but I know that on the other side of every one of those stories is a Tyler, is somebody who's getting a conviction, a feeling that they feel deep, deep, deep down inside of them. They know in their gut, and that feeling is so real to them that they sacrificed because of it. Because for whatever reason, they knew I needed it more than they did. That's something that they were told. I didn't tell them that. I would never tell that to somebody. But for whatever reason, they think they need it more than me even though I'm sure there are plenty of things that they could spend their money on that they want or that they really legitimately need. See, the Hebrew people, they view bowels, as funny as it is, as the seat of the tenderer affections. The seat of the tenderer affections. It, and and, I, and I've, I've been on the other side of that feeling, right? I've been there and I've known, like, this is not something you can just push aside. You can't have this happen. It, and then just not do anything. You have to respond to needs. And, uh, it, and I, I, it's going to haunt you if you don't, right? Because we're wired for generosity. We're wired to love people and to take care of one another. And I hope that that helps you. That's kind of just a flesh and blood uh, reasoning on why John says, if you push aside those deep convictions that we all have, um, if you push aside those convictions, how could you say that God's love abides in you? You know, where on earth do you think those convictions come from? They come from God. Those convictions all come from God. God wired you that way. He created you instinctively to know that you have a role to play in a world that is bigger than just you. Okay? And if a person who has what's needed to meet a need, and instead of meeting that need, they keep it for themselves, even though they don't actually need it, either they're ignoring a conviction or they have ignored a conviction for so long that now they're so numb to it, that they aren't even convicted by it anymore. And I want you to remember this word, this word conviction. Because in a couple minutes, I'm going to turn this whole thing on its head. But if you can see somebody hurting, 
and not feel it in your gut at all. The love of God does not reside in you. It's not in there. You can, you can, you can read it, but it's, it's just words on a page. It's just words. It's just talk. It does not reside in you. John gives us the example of Cain, and this is, this is nuts that he does this, okay? Cain murdered his brother Abel. It's the first murder in history, and this is where John takes us back to. And this threw me off a bit as I'm studying. I'm like, God, why, why didn't go to like the acts of compassion of Jesus or something? Like of all the stories in the Bible, when you're trying to teach people to be compassionate towards other people, why take them to the story of a murder? When you're telling us that we should love people with our actions. So he, this is what John says. He says, don't be like Cain, who murdered his brother. First John 3, 12 tells us why, kind of. He says, well, why? And why did he murder him? Is because Cain's deeds were evil and Abel's were righteous. And just a tiny bit of backstory. We don't have time to get into this, but Cain brought the Lord an offering. It was the first fruit of the ground, and Abel brought the first fruit of his flock and its fat portions, right? And for whatever reason, God accepted Abel's offering, and he did not accept Cain's. And the, the text in Genesis, because Cain's, you can tell Cain's getting mad. God said, if you do well, then will you not be accepted? So we don't know for sure what the reason was. If it was the quality of the offering or the kind of the offering. Personally, based on some of the other scriptures in the Bible about it, I think it had a lot more to do with this heart posture behind the gifts and why he was giving the gifts. Based on why the Bible says, um, based on what the Bible says in other places. Um, but what we know is that God said, if you do it right, it will be accepted. But the problem of the gifts is a whole other sermon. I can't, just can't get into that right now. But what John tells us is that Cain looked at Abel, okay? He looks at Abel, and he has an issue with what he sees. He has an issue with this person who's in front of him. Maybe it was jealousy. Maybe it was anger. Maybe he thought that he elevated himself above his brother. He thought, I'm better than Abel, and which would make it really hard when God chooses Abel's offering and not his. It's like getting a promotion. You want a promotion, and then like your arch enemy at workplace, which you shouldn't really have, but that person gets the promotion instead of you. It would be like, kind of like that. It just makes it stain even more. We don't know, but what we get is that we get that John tells us Cain's deeds were evil. But there's a very significant line that we read in Genesis. It's the last thing that we record, that's recorded of God saying to Cain before he kills Abel. We talked about this, uh, I think, on Mother's Day, like maybe three, four weeks ago. And he says something very specific to Cain. When Cain's dealing with all these emotions, he's dealing with what's going on, he's dealing with these things he's feeling towards his brother, all right? We already know, first of all, that Cain's deeds are evil. Remember, John says this. John says, uh, he says, don't uh, love in word or talk, love in deed. So he, and he uses this word, aragon. Okay, it's the same word when he talks about Cain. He said, Cain's, Aragon, are evil. But you need to love people with Aragon, okay? So, same word. So there's obviously connection between these, this whole passage, okay? We know that Cain's deeds were evil, but this is what God says to, uh, to Cain in Genesis 4. He says this, he says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desires are contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now again, I know we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but remember this, if something is crouching, you cannot see how big it is. That's the whole point. The point is to make it seem small. Like, let's say I'm a burglar. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a burglar. Um, Sin's a burglar, whatever you want to say. Like, whatever he's describing, it's like a burglar. And, it's, and, you knock, and he knocks on the door of somebody's house. You ring the doorbell, and then you crouch behind the door. And then I, I come up, or the person, you, you come up, and you look through the little hole, and you're like, trying to see, just make sure, do I know this person before I open the door? And, of course, you can't see anybody, so you get confused. And so in your confusion, you open the door, and he pounces, right? 
He was there all along. He had just been crouching, and he pounces on you. He attacks you. It's actually, in my opinion, it's the best description that we get in the entire Bible of sin and the way that sin works on our hearts and in our lives even today. Guys, the devil, he works overtime to make things seem like they're not a big deal at all when really they are a big deal until you open that door and it blows up in your face. See, the way that Jesus talks about murder on the Sermon on the Mount is he talks about it being an issue that begins in your heart. It begins here, okay? Because you'd never murder somebody who you love. You can't mur- It's impossible to murder somebody that you love. So what happens is it begins with something that seems small. It seems justifiable. It seems understandable that you would feel that way. You say, I, there's got to be, I could probably figure out a way that I could feel, that I could, I could feel all right about this. I could say something, I could do something, I could convince myself that this is okay. And slowly what that does, even though we don't realize it, is it erodes the core of who you are, your, the bowels, if you will. And it transforms something into something that actually is very, very destructive. You can't murder somebody you love. So that's why, and, and what does Jesus say in the great commandment? He says, who should you love? You love the Lord your God. You love your neighbor as yourself. You, this, is not, this is not something you're supposed to play with. But in your heart, right, something has to shift away from that command when you view this person. And slowly something begins to just sort of chip away the layers of love that you may be supposed to have for another person. And after enough layers have been chipped away, suddenly love is not the issue anymore. Now worth is the issue. And you see another person and you think, that person's not as valuable as I am. It's the only way Hitler was ever able to accomplish what Hitler was able to accomplish. Over years and years, a very, very subtle deception, right? He crouched and he subtly convinced people that another group of people were not as valuable as they are. It's the only way that you can take a life if in your heart you can view a person as having no value. Because you're perfectly, you have, to, you have to justify it. It'd be totally fine if I keep living, they don't keep living. Now, maybe not, nobody in here, and I, I don't believe that anybody in here would actually say that you'd be fine with murdering. I'm not suggesting that at all. But are there people that you just don't value? And by that, I mean whether you're confessing their worth or not, whether you're saying they're valuable or not, do you treat them like they have no value? Because what John is getting at here in this passage is he's saying that the simple act of walking by another human being who has a need that you could easily meet, but then you don't, is a sign that you don't have God living in your heart. That something in there is numb. Something's going the wrong direction. You're supposed to be going this way, but you're going that way. And maybe you don't even realize it, but over time... As you, maybe it's like, okay, over time you've worked, and for whatever it is you've worked for, you think that you've earned that thing, and you know this person hasn't earned that thing, so you think you deserve that thing more than them. And, the only, and, and if the only way that this person could have means that I have to give it, maybe I won't do that. And that, that's why I believe that John takes us all the way back to the beginning, right? To sin crouching at the door and it leading to murder, when he's trying to show us why it's important that we love people with action. Because Satan works in subtleties. He works in subtleties. If he can numb the people of God down to a place where they can see a need and they can, and they can just opt to not meet it even though they, 
had what it takes to meet it. It's almost like we lost before we even started. We haven't even gotten to this morality part of this passage yet. We haven't even gotten into morality yet. We haven't even gotten into the type of life that we should leave and we've already lost. Because if Satan can get your heart, eventually, I promise you, he will get all of you. I think a lot of us, we're, we're, we're going in the opposite direction of loving people and we barely even notice it. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or truth. <clears throat> okay, now I, I want to talk to you about this. This is... Um, We've talked a lot the last few weeks about society and the way that society has changed. The way that culture has shifted. We talked about Antichrist a few weeks ago and about how subtly and slowly the world, it took this enormous cultural shift from one place to another. I mean, really, it happened right before our eyes. You look back on it, you're like, wow, I didn't even see that happen. It was right before our eyes. And though it began subtly and it began slowly, now change is happening at a very rapid pace, isn't it? Christians used to be able to lean on, at the very, very least, something that we may call the moral high ground. As in, like, if nothing else, at least we're the ones that do the right thing. At least we're the ones who, make the, who live morally. At least to a degree, right, people respected the fact that we were moral. Now hang with me on this thought if you can, because I know this is going to be a lot of loops. But with the rapid shifts that are taking place, Christians have lost ground in our world. And I wonder if we don't even realize how much ground we've lost because I think we've lost this ground. In fact, I know we've lost this ground. It's not like this anymore. And there's two sides to this coin, and I'm going to show you both of them. And the first one's going to be really hard to talk about. The second one's going to be a little easier. See, I believe that in way more ways than we have time to talk about, we've brought some of this on ourselves. We've brought some of it on ourselves. Even if in our hearts it's not who we are, even if the body of Christ is being misrepresented, just, for, just a couple examples, like you get the Westboro Baptists, and they don't represent me, they don't represent you, but to some people they represent Christians. Or the alt-right last year, in, in last August, when they were doing their crazy marches and all that stuff. They don't represent you. They don't represent me, but they did it in the name of Jesus, and they represent it. So, so to a lot of people, they represent the church. It's misrepresentation. So I know that some of it does that. But I want us to show us, even beyond that, some ways that maybe, just maybe, we missed it. And I want to do this before I get into the part that might sound like, oh, poor us, poor us, we're so persecuted, because you know, we're not, but, I mean, we, it, you know, but, so we're going to get there. We're going to get to the second part where we understand the world is changing a lot, and even the things that we do that we should do that are considered moral, things that are so clearly laid out in the Bible, especially by Jesus, are actually things that now people consider to be oppressive. They're, they're moral things, and they're considered to be oppressive. So people will will come at us even for doing the right thing, and Jesus told us that would happen, so don't be surprised when that happens. I'm not, like, surprised, okay? But first, I want us to get to a couple of examples that the world, the world really thinks that Christians got it wrong, and at least to a degree, they might be right about it. Pew Research recently did a survey on America's view on refugees. Coming to our country from places, you know, from, for instance, war-torn places like Syria, right? These places in Syria, these places are war-torn. Like, a lot of times, we like to say, we'll send missionaries there, and that's easier, right? 
um, we send people there. But nobody wants to go there because it's incredibly dangerous. Okay? So places like that, they're fleeing for their lives. They're coming here. And the survey that they did, they were researching if Americans felt like we had an obligation to allow them to come into America. Now hang with me here. Don't get distracted. Catch this. They surveyed a variety of groups of people from different races, different educational backgrounds. They surveyed some religious and some non-religious people. And of all of the groups that they surveyed, completely, they surveyed all these different groups, they concluded that no group agrees less with the idea that the United States has an, a responsibility to accept refugees than Christians do. That no group in the entire nation agrees less with that. In fact, in some demographics of Christians, uh, specifically being white evangelical Protestants, it's actually more than two to one say no, no. Okay? But get this. It is opposite with non-religious people. Two to one opposite with non-religious people. Two to one non-religious say, yes, we have an obligation. Now, I can't get into all the reasons why I think this is completely ridiculous. I can't get into that. Matthew 25 in particular comes to mind. When Jesus separates the sheep from the goats and he reserves the harshest judgments he speaks of in the entire Bible for the people who don't take care of the poor, the people who don't clothe the naked, the people who don't welcome the stranger. That's not even my point today. I'm making a much bigger point. You just have to bear with it. We also could get into this excuse that a lot of us make, and I do understand it to a degree, that says, well, it's the church's job, and the church should do it, and the church should do it, but it's not the government's job, so we can't tell them what to do. But if the church is petitioning against the government to do it, how are we going to ever help people that they will not let come to us? It could be, it's very easy to lean on things that we don't have, that we can, we can shift the blame on somebody else, shift the responsibility on somebody else. But this is my point. I have two, I have two points. How in the world, seriously, somebody after church needs to sit me down and needs to explain this to me because I can't fathom this. How in the world is it that the non-believing world is several times more likely to agree with something that is straight out of the mouth of Jesus than people whose entire religion whose, is based on the life, the love, and the teachings of Jesus? Listen, I, I, I'm not, I'm, I, I, this is how it felt. Like, it felt like this when I was reading this. I felt like I was watching one of those interviews where they're, like, interviewing a Hillary Clinton supporter. And the Hillary Clinton supporter is being told all the things about Donald Trump that they don't like. And then they flip it on him at the end and be like, psych, Hillary Clinton said all that things. You're voting for the wrong candidate. Like, it, it could go either way. That's how it, you, you've seen those videos where you're like, oh, look, this person, oh, yeah, I don't like that guy. I don't like, split, actually, that was your candidate that said all that stuff. Like, you ever seen those? That's how I felt like this was. I'm like, Christians are the ones that say no completely, okay? Let that sink in. But this is why that bothers me so much. This is the number one thing that I struggle with when I read that. And I read those statistics. I think about Christians. I think about you. I think about me. I think about our body that's meant to represent Christ. And I think about that word from earlier, conviction. How is it, guys, that our fast, off-the-cuff, First response when being surveyed. I mean, I'm, I imagine I'm just thinking if that were me. First of all, I probably wouldn't take the survey. People are always asking me, "Hey, will you sign this and do that?" I'm like, "I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what this is." And I signed one a few weeks ago. What did I just sign? I don't even know. Like, I try to avoid those things. That's just who I am. But like, 
So you're taking a survey, right? And they ask you, first of all, are you educated? Second of all, what's your religious affiliation, right? So right away, you're checking this little box. This is, I'm going to represent Jesus in the way that I respond to this question. I'm going to represent the church of Jesus Christ in the way that I'm going to answer this question. I'm going to speak on behalf of Jesus Christ, on behalf of the church, when I answer this question in our first conviction when asked about strangers, is to just broadly stroke it by saying, no. I don't feel responsible. I don't think they're my problem. I don't think they should be our country's problem. When Cain killed Abel, God asked him this question. Cain, where's your brother? Where's your brother? Where's Abel? And this is what Cain said in response. And I feel like so many people today are echoing his response. 6,000 years, however many thousands of years later. I don't know where my brother is. Am I my brother's keeper? And though God does not answer Cain directly to that question, the, the writer John later tells his church, yes. Yes, you are. You are your brother's keeper. And if you see someone in need and you have what it takes to meet that need, it is your job to meet that need. Guys, the idea that says, I am not my brother's keeper, that is the way of Cain. It is a very destructive path that will lead you to very, very dark places. And because we're so quick to respond so harshly to a, toward a concept that most of us barely even understand, the world looks at Christians, and this is where I'm taking this right now, the world looks at Christians, and they say, wow, those people are not loving. I don't think that that's true of us. I think we are loving. I don't believe that we're, we're all the things that people say that we are or think that we are, but that is the perception that people have of the church of Jesus Christ right now, and that's a problem. No matter where you stand on any of these issues at all, that is a problem. You've got to see that as a problem. The world who used to look at Christians and at least see us as moral, now look at Christians and think that we are immoral. They view Christians as the ones who are always quick to want to go to war. They view Christians as being the ones who completely ignore the racial injustices. And sometimes, even worse, in the case of like last year, they see us as the ones who actually think it's a good thing. We're not but it's how they see us. They view Christians as people who are insensitive and who lack empathy when innocent people are killed. They view Christians, and they're painting Christians, as people who would rather talk about rights than they would talk about lives. And something that we're doing is leading them to draw this conclusion. I wrote this down. And again, part of this is just perception. I, I don't, I'm not saying that this is all of us. I just want you to understand that. But as a body, what have we done? Like, how is it that a religion, if you can call it that, who follows a man that laid down his life has gained a reputation for being the people who are most concerned with preserving theirs? Again, I'm not saying we all do this. I think what happens sometimes is people take like a sliver of what someone says, or a slice of what we might believe, and they make a whole cake out of that thing, right? Because they want to bring us down. I, I do believe there are enemies of the church. I, I do believe there are people that just want to hurt the church. But because of that, because there are people who want to hurt us, there are people who are out to get us, I think we've got to work twice as hard. 
We can't ignore it and live in our little bubble and pretend like we're the only ones that matter. We have to do everything we can to show the world that we have the love of Jesus and we love them with the same love that Jesus has, us, has for us and the same love that he has for them and that we love them. And we do that by treating our neighbors with love, our neighbors near and our far. Because I just think we can do better. I think we can do better than where we are right now. Because there are a lot of other issues that Jesus talks about, and I, I believe we're on the right side of them. I don't believe we're on the wrong side of all these things. I think we're on the right side of a lot of these things, and we're still, they still say you're on the wrong side of history. When it comes to sexuality, you're on the wrong side of history. That's what they, that's what they say. Like, listen, we should be coming more like Jesus. When, no matter what the area is, we should never be going less like Jesus. Think about it. Think about this. Because some things we do bring on ourselves, like some of the things I just described, but there are other things that the world thinks that Christians get wrong, and guys, we, I really don't believe we get it wrong. But we get the same type of reactions now. It didn't used to be that way. Now it is, right? There are things that we should do. For instance, we teach that sex is sacred. We teach that it's sacred. We teach that it has no place outside of the covenant of marriage. That used to be a moral high ground. Like, we were the minority in the way that we lived, but at least several years ago, like, for me, like, there's a certain respect there. People would be like, I think that's kind of weird that you do that, but okay, I, I, I get it. Like, there's a respect there that you're actually able to work, to live like that, right? You don't smoke, you don't drink, you've never even tried drugs. Like, that's weird, but I respect that you are able to hold yourself to doing that. It used to be able to... It used to be easier to just stand out by being moral, by our morality. Now people hear that I'm teaching that, and they're like, you're teaching people that? Sex with one person? Like, what, you're oppressing them. You're boxing them in. Like, and what if they're not straight, but then they get married and they never got a chance to explore their sexuality and make these discoveries? You're boxing them in. Or what if they're not sexually compatible with their spouse and they don't even know it until after they get married? And now it's too late, you're saying? Like, there's no way out? There's nothing they can do? Like, it's something that you just try to work on rather than just go find something else? Because we are literally viewed as immoral for the moral positions we take. And I'm not complaining about that. I'm just telling you guys, buckle up. Because the world is only getting further and further this way. But because we're not here for ourselves, because we're not here for ourselves, that's not why this church exists. That's not why the church exists. As hard as it may be to hear, we're also not even here for our rules. And we are certainly not here to heap our rules upon non-believing people. People who aren't even Christians yet. Guys, we're not here for these four walls. And we're not here for the worship. And we're not even here for the messages. We are here for the people who aren't here. We're here for the people who are looking at us. And they're thinking, those people are bigots. We're here for you. Those people are oppressive. Those people are crazy. I long for the day when instead those people say, those people are for me. And we're not going to win them with our morality. And we aren't going to win them with our talk. There's only one thing, one thing in the entire world that is going to cause us to stand out in a world that is so lost and in a world that is so critical of the church. 
and that's love. There are several historical accounts of first century time, about AD 165, and I think it happened about another 100 years later. It happened again, almost the exact same story of absolutely enormous plagues. And these plagues hit these major cities throughout the, uh, throughout the world, and people were dying left and right. There's accounts of like bodies just piled on top of each other, sick people, parts of these bodies, of these piles of people. And there's these descriptions recorded, and it's just so graphic. People dying, people dead, people dead, people dying. And it got to this point where everybody in these cities where these things were breaking up, they took off. They said, I'm out of here. Even the doctors, I'm out of here. There's nothing we can do. Nobody even tried to help, except for a rather large group of Christians. Some of them educated, who had a decent idea of what maybe they could do. Others just godly men and godly women who refused to let those people die alone. Who refused to let those people die without prayer. Who refused to let them die without a chance for God to possibly just show up, right? People who, were, they wouldn't let them die without getting care. Until suddenly, before long, the people who were caring for them started getting sick too, and they started dying themselves. They started dying loving them. They started dying meeting people's needs. They started dying ministering to them. And all the pagan people with their other gods, they took off. They left their own families. They left their own tribes. But the Christians stayed. And they took care of their own Christians and they took care of the pagans. And they showed them the love of Christ until they died themselves. That was action. Aligned intently next to the words of hope. Now, do you think, guys, do you think that when those people's entire worlds fell apart and they're in their darkest hour and they're dying and every person that they ever thought that was for them took off and abandoned them, everybody they knew left them, even their gods that they worshiped, they did not show up. Do you think that they were speaking out against those Christians in that moment? No. They won those people with their love, even when it cost them their life. By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Think about it, guys. We can live morally, not sin, right? You may be doing well for yourself. It's really good. Keep doing that, please. I'm not telling you not to. We've got to be moral people. It's going to get you in right standing with God, and that's good, but you aren't necessarily going to win anybody with it, especially in today's culture. But to lay down your life for somebody, you win. You win. Because suddenly all that morality that you claim and that you dedicate your life to, it takes on flesh and it takes on blood. And you show that the gospel that you believe actually shows you that the person that you're dying for, they're actually worth dying for. It means, if it means that you could show them Jesus. You see how that's flipped? That's the opposite of Cain. It's saying, I value you so much that I would give up my life for you. And I certainly don't think or wish upon any of us that we'd have to physically die for another human being. Hopefully that doesn't happen to, to many of us or any. But I think that as we count the costs of our commitment to Christ, we do need to ask the question of would it be worth it to me to do that? Would it be worth it to me to lose my life for somebody else to gain their soul? Would it be worth it? 
Jesus said yes. He said yes with his life. These missionaries, they said yes. They won by losing, just like Jesus. Jesus wins by losing. That is the entire gospel of Jesus Christ. It's already been done for you. And this is the last thing I want to share with you. A couple of days ago, I, um, I was picking up my kids from school, and, and our car doesn't have AC in it. Okay, we don't have AC in our car. And uh, it was very hot that day. You know how there's just those really, really hot days, and you're like, man, I don't want to be in my car right now because it's just beating down on me. The sun is so hot, so uncomfortable. The kids were getting grouchy because it was so uncomfortable. And as we were driving home, we're, we're uh, coming off Werner on the east side. We're about to turn left on Graship. And I saw a man that was holding a sign. He was asking people for money at the stoplight. I see people doing this. You do probably 10, 15 times a day. But something about what was on this man's sign really stuck out to me. Like, like all the other signs you ever see, the first half was kind of him building his case. This is what happened to me. I don't really remember what happened. But I remember the very last line in that sign, because I thought about it all day long after I read it. It said this, God blessed you. See, normally in these types of messages, and I know you've seen them, they end by saying, God bless you. God bless you, which is really just a slightly more spiritual way of saying, thank you. Thank you. It's saying, my desire is that you would be blessed for the generosity that you're willing to show me in this moment, maybe to help me get something to eat, whatever it might be. But when I read God blessed you, I read something different entirely. I read you're blessed right now. See, to the man who's sitting on the side of the highway in 85 or 90 degree heat with the sun beating down on him, trying to figure out where he's going to get some money for the next meal or to feed his kids or to get more of the drugs that he's hooked on. I don't know what the situation is. When he sees that person driving that beat up 15-year-old car with no air conditioning, he sees someone who's blessed, someone who doesn't have to walk home, Someone who's about, in about two minutes, going to turn on the I-75 and roll his windows down and gets a nice cool breeze that's going to cool him down for the next little while while that guy's still baking in the sun in a spot next to the stoplight. It's really easy to spend your entire life thinking about what you don't have. It's the trap of the American dream. It just is. It's one of Satan's greatest tricks that he plays on your mind. Because if he can convince you that you don't have enough, it becomes very, very easy to justify why you can't help somebody else in their time of need, because you have your own needs. Especially, like I said, in our world, in our city, where you drive by 10 to 15 people like that every single day, just going to work and coming home, and they're all asking. And I know you can't give money to every single person that asks. This is Detroit, right? I get that. Even. Even Jesus says, the poor you're going to have with you always, the needs are never going away. I, I know that. But what I wonder, and what I'm convicted on, is if that consistency by which we see brokenness has allowed us to accept it as just the way that it is. And it's caused us to believe that we don't have a responsibility in solving it. If you were polled, if I was polled, if we were polled, and we were asked that same question about the refugees, but maybe we asked it about the poor, 
And we said, do you believe that you have a responsibility to take care of the poor? Would you say yes? Or would you say no? The Bible says yes. Do you believe that you have a responsibility to take care of the stranger? Would you say yes? Or would you say no? The Bible says yes. The Bible says that we are our brother's keeper. Don't let yourself get to a place where you don't feel that prompting in your gut anymore. Don't close your bowels of compassion. Because once you get it closed off to yourself, you close yourself off to the needs of other people, it becomes a very, very, very difficult door to reopen. It's always easier to think about yourself. It's always easier to think about me. And the more you do it, the more you will do it. But we're blessed. And trust me, I've lived on the other side of that. I've lived in the world of the victim. I've done it often. I've made mental lists of all the things that I need that I don't have. And I let myself live there sometimes, but I am blessed. And more than I want material things, houses, cars, money, things that are they're all great, but whatever. I want the love of God living in me. I want the love of Jesus Christ abiding in me. Anyone who has the world's goods and he sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart to him, the love of God is not living in him. That's a heavy thought. But Christ died for us. And John says that that is our example. Example. 